Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. You should know that over the past 100 years, the surest sign of recession has been a Philadelphia-based baseball team winning the World Series. That happened in 1929, 1930, 1980, and 2008. Well, the Phillies are back in the World Series, and this Philadelphia native is sure hoping the long-feared recession materializes. Uh, That's not true, of course, but I sure hope the Phils lay waste to the Astros. This week, our three things are 1. Peak pessimism. Are we there yet? 2. Housing. It's all over the news again. Here's what you need to know. 3. The New York Fed's underlying inflation gauge. It's a CPI alternative. Is the Fed watching? All right, let's dig a bit deeper. How you doing? Have we reached peak pessimism yet? I guess it all depends on what moves you. In markets, Jim Reed of Deutsche Bank described the everything down market recently as the worst September, Q3, and year to date of your career. Well, that's pretty definitive, unless you think it could actually get worse. But we want to think of peak pessimism as the point where risk markets and what drives them cannot get worse, where we bottom out, the point at which it all starts to get better. Well, for what it's worth, we're not there yet. Try and figure this out, we decided to break down our query into its component parts, the consumer, businesses, and markets the latter presumably reflective of what's happening with the other two. Starting with the consumer, it's not that bad. The jobs market is, for the most part, strong. Wealth remains high courtesy of the pandemic period and its unprecedented stimulus. We see that in consumers' still elevated excess savings level and the values of one's home and investment portfolio. All of that, of course, is coming down But consumers are still solidly to the plus at this stage. What's not good is inflation, which is eating away at said savings and wages. Real wages have fallen year over year for 17 consecutive months. That leaves a mark. And there is an unease about the consumer's look to the future. The University of Michigan Consumer Expectations Index is hovering around levels typical of recessions. And that takes into account the tax of inflation and the reality of a building negative wealth effect over the near term as economic contraction bites. Over on the business side of things, we see a similar picture, one where dynamics today are, quite frankly, strong, but where the pressures brought about by economic slowdown are expected to intensify. Corporate earnings growth is decelerating with higher costs and a fading top line eating into what was record margins. The super-strong dollar is hurting multinationals, and many firms are struggling to keep up with changing consumer preferences and the effects of rapidly changing technologies. Inflation and the labor shortage are weighing on sentiment, especially among small businesses, where the NFIB Small Business Outlook Survey is at or near all-time lows. In a typical recession, We see corporate earnings fall 10 to 15%, and we're not seeing that yet. Now, in markets, notwithstanding the pain of a historic correction, we don't think the risk of what's in front of us has been priced in yet. 
Credit spreads and equity multiples have been back to long-term averages for the past several months now, and the chop around those averages has at times been extreme. But we're still not pricing in a recession. We believe the gravitational pull in spreads is wider as investors take advantage of repriced securities guided by an up in quality, up in liquidity, and up in simplicity bias. So pulling it all together? No, we're not at peak pessimism. We are aware that markets will move well in advance of the Fed stepping down its tightening program and well in advance of the depths of the downturn, but we're not there yet. And even though we believe much of the headwinds we're heading into are well-known and manageable, we believe much of this has to be better defined before we bottom out. All right, on to our second thing, housing's downturn. Now, we have to admit to being a bit taken aback by the cover story in The Economist this week, a house price horror show. This from a typically understated newspaper, as it likes to call itself. A slump in house prices is coming. It won't blow up the financial system, but it will be scary, reads the subtitle. Well, not blowing up the financial system is a good thing. That helps to dimension the downturn and draw the all-important distinction with the GFC. So what exactly is scary? According to the newspaper, the coming decline in home values will intensify the downturn, leave a cohort of people with wrecked finances, and start a political storm. Uh, no, it won't. At least not in the U.S. Yes, the Fed's jawboning has pushed mortgage rates to levels that are impacting the economy. As we've said on the podcast several times previously, we are due to have the air let out of housing values, which went, in The Economist's words, bizarrely ballistic during the pandemic. Some of this was demand-driven by the work-from-home phenomena, and much of this was the result of the Fed engineering super-low interest rates. Like many other things, mortgage rates have corrected back toward long-term averages. By the way, the long-term average for a 30-year mortgage, 7.76%, according to Freddie Mac, using data back to the 1970s. Now, the economic costs of this are real. Housing typically represents 15 to 18% of GDP. That's broken down into 3 to 5% via new construction and 12 to 13% on spending, which includes rents and owners' imputed rents and utilities. And strangely, for a country with a chronic shortage of houses, estimated by Freddie Mac to be nearly 4 million, supply has been slow to close the gap. Investment in housing plunged at an annualized rate of 26% in the most recent GDP report. The S&P Home Builders ETF is down 32% this year. The cost of all of this? Well, unaffordable housing markets inhibit mobility, curtail spending on things like home furnishings and improvements, and produce the drag of negative wealth effect. Now, we are seeing the first evidence in the U.S. of widespread home price depreciation. The S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller Index fell month-on-month the first time in 10 years in July, and it's fallen again in August. Keep in mind, homeowners are simply giving back some of their gain. They are still up 13% year-on-year. Add this to the list of things that are making the consumer grumpy. But what's going on in housing in no way resembles anything close to what happened in the lead-up to the GFC. All right, on to our third thing, a better inflation gauge. 
Now, one thing that will always frustrate us is the quality of the U.S. macroeconomic data. For example, why does the BLS have two different surveys for unemployment? This does nothing but confuse investors, especially when those surveys are going in opposite directions as they did this past summer. But we digress. Inflation data is also suboptimal, although at least it's not coming from the same government agency. We've got CPI, calculated by the BLS. We've got PCE, calculated by the BEA. The Fed's favorite is core PCE, which is derived from a broader array of prices than CPI. That sounds like an improvement. For example, Shelter makes up 16% of PCE versus 33% in the CPI. Then there's headline versus core, trimmed mean, sticky price, etc. All ways that someone believes is a better way to capture inflation. Except no one can agree on what's the best mousetrap. It's frustrating. In any event, the New York Fed weighed in with its own new measure back in 2017, the UIG, or Underlying Inflation Gauge. I'll bet you never heard of it. According to the Fed, the UIG is derived from a large data set that extends beyond price variables, and it displays greater forecast accuracy than core CPI or PCE measures. Sounds like we should have heard of it. We bring this up because where inflation is headed has everything to do with just how much the Fed will tighten credit conditions, which ultimately impacts default rates. We also found it interesting that the UIG's full data set measure as opposed to its also-quoted prices-only set, is coming in materially lower than CPI. In September, the UIG was 4.4% versus the CPI's alarming 8.2%. Now, part of the problem with CPI is that its data is significantly dated, especially in the all-important shelter calculation, where, by the BLS's own admission, that data lags market rents by a year. That sounds like a case for using the UIG. Point is, the Fed could be seeing very different inflation numbers, but standing up and explaining why it is stepping down its interest rate hikes in the face of what is still likely to be unacceptably high, remember lag, CPI readings, will take a whole lot of courage and communication skill on the part of the Fed. And if the goal at this point is not to become Paul Volcker, who infamously did not finish the inflation-taming job back in 1980, investors cannot rightfully expect the Fed to dial back its tightening program appropriately. And sadly, that will be negative for credit. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, peak pessimism. We're not there yet. And that argues that spreads should go wider. Two, housing. It's all over the news again. It won't help steady the economic ship, but it won't sink it either. And three, the New York Fed's underlying inflation gauge. It's a CPI alternative. Apparently, it's a better gauge, and its current reading is far less scary than what CPI is showing. Let's hope the Fed is watching. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest research and ratings reports. See you next week.